Welcome. This is the Matterhorn. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Waller. Here we discover the truth in fiction by understanding how to layer stories with ideas, culture, places, and texts. Join us on Substack for links, extra media, and transcripts. There you can also join the conversation and read my serialized novel, A Hong Kong Story. Hey everyone, it's Kate, and welcome to episode 39, where I'm going to talk about the word and concept of the pharmacon, um, which Derrida brings us in Plato's Pharmacy, which is in um, his book, Dissemination. And last week we were talking about physics, so now we're going to talk about metaphysics. And actually there's um, a couple of times when it connects to a few of the texts that we were talking about last week, so that should be interesting. Um, So as I mentioned, the the ideas today um, are coming from and built upon something that Jacques Derrida explores in his book Dissemination or Dissemination, um, the large section on Plato's pharmacy that talks about this um, word, the pharmacon, which can be a poison or a remedy, can also be a scapegoat and a few other things. But maybe if we simplify it for now as a poison and a remedy, this sort of two-sided word, um, Derrida is looking at the problems in what he sees as the problems in translation of Plato's work and the way that's created um, a discourse about speech and writing um, in relation to what Plato had said that he disagrees with. And so he's he's questioning um, he's questioning philosophers' interpretation of this. He's talking about writing specifically. He's talking about dichotomies as he um, does a lot. Um, he's talking about indeterminacy, the issues of translation, and also looking at the self and ontology. Um, through through writing specifically. So we'll be looking a little bit about this idea of tensions in philosophy and what that might have to do um, with layers of, of writing. So Derrida is talking about writing specifically itself, but we can also think about um, translation and, you know, we've talked about using multilingualism in fiction before. And so maybe using that to a benefit in your writing. Also, you know, this idea of ambiguity or indeterminacy through the language itself or through selections you have, for example, in an ending or ways to read a character, Um, as well as the, you know, going back to this root word, the pharmacon, um, as a remedy and a poison and the way that you can maybe create a certain moment or a bigger idea that, um, can be seen in either way and what the value is in looking at your language or your plot structure in that way. Um, And we'll look at the way the concept is played in fictions. Um, Specifically, we'll look a little bit more at Eileen Chang's Lust Lust Caution, um, which was also a film by Ang Lee, which some of you may have seen. And in Spaces and Places, I will take us to Shang Wan, which is where the Saturday's novel chapter was based and it's also one of the several neighborhoods that I lived in in Hong Kong and it's a really interesting place so there are also a few videos related to today's um, discussion in on the Substack, um, along with the other links and an opportunity to converse in the comments um, but yeah some of those um, videos today you might find interesting, I hope. So if we just go back to the concept from Plato to start, now we're not going to spend a long time on Plato's work here. I'm just going to basically summarize so that we have a springboard to work off of. Um, And I don't speak Greek, so I'm allowing Derrida to, or ancient Greek or either kind of Greek, I'm allowing Derrida to interpret for me. Um, But I do speak French, so that helps me to interpret Derrida for you, Um, even though I'm also looking at English translation and I'm looking at the original French. Um, Sometimes I'm translating myself 
I think it can help in understanding. And as I've mentioned on this podcast before, I really enjoy kind of getting a little bit lost in Derrida, not just his work, but other writers that I think um, write in this really kind of complex, always question, even questioning itself as it's being written. Um, this kind of work, uh, you know, in his work is nonfiction, but even in Borges, who I'll mention again later today, just a little bit, um, you know, his works of fiction also, you know, he, he talks about labyrinths specifically. And I think it creates this kind of labyrinth that allows you a chance to kind of sit unsettled to reshape your ideas or at least question them, even if you don't have a firm conclusion. So it was really fun to go back to this text for you guys today and think about why I'm using the term in my work and the way that uh, Derrida is looking at writing as well also shapes um, some of the ways that I write. Okay, so let's just start with Plato's Phaedrus, um, which is uh, this dialogue between Socrates and Phaedrus. Um, and it is what um, Derrida is looking, he's looking at translations of this conversation, um, critiquing the translations and also offering um, another another reading of it that and then goes beyond it. So I love the Wikipedia summary. It's very succinct. It kind of says it all. It's got a lot of interesting hyperlinks there as well if you go to the actual page. So it says that Phaedrus, written by Plato, is a dialogue between Socrates and Phaedrus, an interlocutor in several dialogues. The Phaedrus was presumably composed around 370 BC, about the same time as Plato's Republic and Symposium. Although ostensibly about the topic of love, the discussion in the dialogue revolves around the art of rhetoric and how it should be practiced, and dwells on subjects as diverse as metempsychosis, the Greek tradition of reincarnation, and erotic love, and the nature of the human soul shown in the famous chariot allegory. Um, and if you want to know more about Plato's work specifically, there is a great guide from the University of Hawaii, which I will link for you. They've got a whole website on Phaedrus, so I recommend going there. Um, so Plato says in this text, and it's still open to um, interpretation because Derrida is going to look at the way that the reason that maybe Plato says this almost as a, as a as a fiction contained within his text, so something that we can't necessarily take at face value. But Plato in the dialogue is saying that writing doesn't allow for discourse, that people have to accept what's given to them, um, that it relies a lot on memory, which is fallible. Um, of course, we know that there is always a dialogue of writing and literature, and that's, I mean, that's a lot of what this podcast is about. So at least, you know, I believe that there is a dialogue involved in writing. Um, but Plato's also talking about kind of the regurgitation of reading something that's written and then um, just rather than thinking about something yourself and having a discourse and getting to a different conclusion just um, reading it to someone else, memorizing it as as your own ideas. Um, speech, by contrast, Plato says, allows a response and can help us to get to a better sense of the truth. So Plato tells the story of Phaedrus and Socrates um, critiquing the reading of someone else's words or giving oneself over to memorizing others' ideas. Um, there's the thought that writing creates a kind of regression or docile minds. And this is the way, at least, that many others translate or translated in the past Plato's, Plato's work because they didn't necessarily, Derrida tells us, take into consideration the double meaning, the duplicity of especially the word pharmacon, as well as the ambiguity in the text allowing us the reader to interpret what Plato is saying and part of Derrida's argument right at the beginning is that well Plato is a writer as well so and he he writes about um, his philosophical ideas so why would he condemn writing in in a text um it doesn't really 
make sense that he would completely privilege speech, although he may think that there's a lot of power in speech in finding the truth. Um, you know, there's there's something bigger going on than that. So let's just kind of sit with that to start. And we're going to dig deeper and look at a little bit of Derrida's work, not a ton. Um, also, you know, you can obviously go to this yourself and think about it more. What I'd like to do is just start with actually a short introduction to the work from Michael Kobusen, who's the professor of music philosophy at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And so I think it's interesting to see the way that people in different academic disciplines pick up on Derrida's work and find the significance of it in their own. And I just really love the way he says this. So this is this is kind of just a starting point so that then we can go off onto um, Derrida's words and dig a little deeper with this idea of duplicity and what it has to do with dichotomies and all of this. Okay, so um, he says, no single word in English captures the play of signification of the ancient Greek word pharmakon. Derrida traces the meanings assigned to pharmakon in Plato's dialogues, remedy, poison, either the cure of the illness or its cause. Filter, drug, recipe, charm, medicine, substance, spell, artificial color, and paint. So it has a lot of meanings. Um, my own words, it can also be scapegoat. Okay, the word pharmacon is overdetermined, signifying in so many ways that the very notion of signification gets overloaded. A translation problem? Yes and no. In choosing one meaning, translators often decide what in Plato's text remains undecidable. But as indicated above, the problem is inherent in its very principle, situated less in the translation from one language to another than already within the Greek language itself. And adopted within philosophical discourse, pharmacon does not suddenly become unambiguous, ready and suited for the dialectic operations. In Phaedrus, Socrates tries to distinguish between two kinds of words, the unambiguous, words about which we all agree, and the ambiguous, words about which we are at variance. In Plato, Derrida and writing, Jasper Neal argues that in fact there are no unambiguous words. Instead, the words like pharmacon threatens the philosophical process, threatens dialects from within. Plato's text itself is thus already the battlefield of an impossible process of translation. And this is exactly um, why Derrida finds it interesting. And I think this is how he sees all writing as kind of dancing on the page before you, because it's never something that is totally static. You know, we bring our own ideas to the writing before us. We can then interpret them in new ways. We can use them as a springboard for something else. But the words themselves, although they may have clear definitions, I mean, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they have multiple definitions, like this word pharmacon, which has extreme um, opposites of, of definitions um, in some ways. And then that collapses on itself, which we'll look at. But um, but any word also has the connotations, the words connections, the way it's been used over time in writing and in other kinds of discourse, um, the ways it appears, um, not just in literature, but in culture, in different ways, in different contexts. And so, you know, words are written words, um, although they may be printed in black and white, perhaps, um, they are still alive. Yeah. So let's just look um, at one opening passage of um, Derrida, and I'll read it first in the original French and then a translation. This one is not my translation. Um which also interestingly shortens it a little bit. So I'm on page 88 um, to 89 in my text, which I'll share with you in the notes. Okay, and this is sort of the, the crux of his argument, what he's saying here. On aura remarqué que nous utilisons une traduction consacrée de Platon sur des éditions Guillaume Boudet qui fait autorité Ici, pour le Phèdre, sœur de Léon Robin, nous continuons à la faire en insérant toutefois quand cela nous paraître important et quand, à notre propos, pertinent, le texte grec entre parenthèses. Ainsi, par exemple, le mot pharmacon. C'est alors qu'apparaître mieux, nous l'espérons, cette polysémie réglée qui a permis par gauchissement 
indétermination ou surdétermination, mais sans contresens, de traduire le même mot par remède, poison, drogue, filtre, etc. On verra aussi à quel point l'unité plastique de ce concept se règle plutôt et l'étrange logique qui le lie à son signifi signifiant. Ont été dispersés, masqués, oblitérés, frappés d'une relative illisibilité par l'imprudence ou l'emprisme des traducteurs, certes, mais d'abord par la redoutable et irréductible difficulté de la traduction, difficulté du principe, de principe qui tient moins au passage d'une langue dans une autre, d'une langue philosophique dans une autre, qu'à la tradition déjà, nous le verrons, du grec au grec et violente, d'un non-philosophème dans un philosophème. Avant ce problème de traduction, nous n'aurons affaire à rien de moins qu'au problème de passage à la philosophie. So he is likening the problem of translation to the main problems in delivering a philosophy as a ideology. So let's let's look just at this slightly shortened English part. Um, and part of it that's left out is the um, the mention by Derrida of the exact translations of Plato that he is critiquing. So we hope to display in the most striking manner the regular ordered polysemy. Sorry, both of the texts I'm looking at have very tiny, tiny, tiny print, so I'm sorry about that. Okay, we hope to display in the most striking manner the regular ordered polysemy that has through skewing indetermination or overdetermination, but without mistranslation, permitted the rendering of the same word by remedy, recipe, poison, drug, filter, etc. It will also be seen to what extent the malleable unity of this concept, or rather its rules and the strange logic that links it with its signifier, has been dispersed, masked, obliterated, and rendered almost unreadable, not only by the imprudence or empiricism of the translators, but first and foremost by the reducible, irreducible difficulty of translation. It is a difficulty inherent in its very principle, situated less in the passage from one language to another, from one philosophical language to another. Other, than already, as we shall see in the tradition between Greek and Greek, a violent difficulty in the transference of a non-philosophem into a philosophem. Um, with this problem of translation, we will thus be dealing with nothing less than the problem of the very passage into philosophy. So he's telling us that um, philosophy itself shouldn't be stagnant. It should be something that is living, um, that we can continue to question. And, you know, part of the act of translation is in considering the multiplicity of, um, of meanings. And so he thinks that a transla translation, a direct translation can never really get at all of the, um, all of the first meanings of the text, although that in writing a translation, you may create new duplicities of meaning. Um, so if we see writing specifically as a pharmacon in this text, which is what Plato is talking about, he uses the word pharmacon um, to describe writing. And so it had been often translated as a poison, as something that is going to harm people because it leads to regurgitation, because it leads to a lack of thinking, this kind of thing. But Derrida says, well, it can also be interpreted as the, the remedy. And, you know, what if the, um, what if the original act of writing itself allows the, the self, and this is where we get into the self and ontology, allows one to, to think, to consider the ideas, to get to know oneself better as well through the process of writing. Um, and this is something that Derrida talks about in other texts about the process of becoming, for example, the self um, is in the process of writing. What if that act allows um, that kind of work? And so it's a it's a remedy for stagnant thinking, actually taking up the pen and writing yourself. And whether it's after a dialogue and speech between people, or it perhaps precedes it, and then that creates um, the thing that people talk about. 
um, you know, for example, like in a classroom's Socratic seminar these days, we tend to, as educators, say, okay, we have a, a text we're using as the basis for this discussion. And then we we bounce around in the, the group setting of the Socratic seminar and always go back to the text to reinterpret, to discuss um, that text. And so that might be an interesting way of thinking about that, that piece of writing as a remedy rather than a poison. Um, let's just use more as say propaganda, something like that. So we're in the process of then looking for truth, um, which might be a kind of wisdom, knowledge, and ontological truth about the self. We can find that in fiction because fiction, um, even more so contains these these duplicities. It's open for interpretation. You know, the the writer isn't necessarily telling us outright what they think. You know, we sometimes wrongly look at a protagonist, this character, and their their actions and their speech, and we might think, oh, these are the these are the ideas of the um, author. This is what they think. But in fact, they might be um, creating a character you know, with whom they disagree, or at least they have questions about. So it's this kind of space of play in the fiction. Um, and, you know, Derrida talks about this space of play a lot. So what I'm saying here is that Derrida is reading um, Plato as a defense of writing, despite the way it is typically interpreted as the opposite to the irk of some philosophers. Um, so he had quite a lot of criticism um, after this text as well. Um, just saying, you know, why is he confusing things um, as he always does? And, you know, you might agree with that. And, you know, I think whether or not you agree with that, it still brings up a lot of questions about language and the act of writing, which might be useful for you, as well as just this notion of the pharmacon as a kind of two-sided idea, which we'll look at in literature. So he's largely talking about the issue of translation um, and not just duplicities, but not perhaps allowing nuances to exist in the text if the translation um, doesn't take into account these nuances. And, um, you know, you might be aware that a lot of translations of Derrida's texts um, use um, bracketed French or sometimes Greek, like in the case of, of this text, for example, as well. And, you know, I think people who choose to translate Derrida probably are interested in his work anyway. Um, and and so to be more true to Derrida, they would try to capture the um, original language as much as possible. And when they don't think it's, it's possible to do so in English, then they would allow the French to coexist. So interestingly, in, in Derrida's original work, he also includes um, quotes from Borges and from James Joyce. So, we, you know, we were talking about Borges last week um, and this idea of parallel universes. And, you know, it's interesting that he talks about here we have a quote une autre que l'univers est comparable à ces cryptographies dans lesquelles tous les symboles n'ont pas la même valeur so he's saying that um uh, there there are these these maps of the universe um which symbols don't have the same they don't have the same value in the different ways they are seen in different universes in different labyrinths in different people's um minds. And so these labyrinths of Borges, he thinks also demonstrate um, what he's trying to say in this text. He also quotes Joyce from a portrait of the artist as a young man. And interestingly, he chooses to publish that in, in English. So translating from Spanish to French for Borges and keeping us um, in the original English with Joyce. Um, and a sense of fear of the unknown moved in the heart of his weariness, a fear of symbols and portents of the hawk-like man whose name he bore soaring out of his captivity, an osier-woven wing of Thoth, the god of writers, writing with a reed upon a tablet and bearing on his narrow ibis head the cusped moon. And so, you know, looking at writing within the fictional text and the way that symbols take on different meanings um, and the way that, you know, the god of writers would 
even not just want, but really encourage this kind of multiplicity in the language that's that's put down on paper. So, um, you know, I think Joyce is a writer that that does this as well. He really allows for uh, many interpretations of his work, you know, beyond the language choice, actually the way that he's constructing the narrative as well. So Derrida really gets into the word, the pharmacon, um, in the section number four, le pharmacon, which is on page 118 of my book. And he's, he's talking about the signification of the word, the way that it has multiple meanings, um, and the way that he thinks that Plato was encouraging us to question rather to just, um, rather than to just accept the words at face value. And he includes a lot of questions in a row, as Derrida often does. Um, he says, um, you know, are we are we to to look at this within his text or outside of his text? Um, are we supposed to look at it as language um, in in relation to the writing, or are we supposed to look at it as something that you can speak? Um, additionally, to looking at the written text, at what time should we be reading the text? Does this make a difference? He's he's just kind of bringing up all these questions about the signification of the word pharmacon in the text, and the way that this word really changes everything in the way that we think about um, writing in the text. But you can also think of you know the pharmacon not just about speech and writing, which is the essence of what's going on here. But you know Derrida brings up other dichotomies like. Um, you know, evil and good, for example, and the way that, you know, in deconstruction, his whole argument is that this binary um, isn't always clear, and it breaks down um, when we start to look at what we label as even evil and good, we might start to find nuances in that proclamation and that idea of the truth as, you know, one side and the other. So um, the way that I use this word pharmacon in this novel that I've written is this kind of two-sided nature of things that can happen. And sometimes it's about perspective, but sometimes it's also that, you know, the answer isn't clear no matter which perspective you have. So um, short passage of what I wrote this past week, her body had failed her. The husband who was to be of her flesh had failed her, had kept her body at a distance. And so the remedy, heal it from within, this vessel had become a pharmacon. At once it was a poison and a remedy. Somehow she had to find a balance, had to figure out how the failures of her body could become a part of her story. And in a sense, the character is trying to make a double signification of her real experiences, um, what's happened to her body through a miscarriage, but also what's happened to her marriage. Um, you might also read The Fate of Hong Kong in a similar way in, in this novel and the way that I present it. But I'm sure you could think of a lot of things, I mean, even in your own lives, not in writing, where, you know, sometimes it's it's both a poison and a remedy. You know, these failures that we learn from, for example. Um, I'm sure you have a lot of examples of things that have happened in your life. And that doesn't mean that the the painful aspect of it is diminished. It still exists. But at the same time, it may be a kind of remedy for something else or for the self, the ontological self in some way. Um, so Derrida is talking about the kinship of writing and myth. Writing comes from many spaces of human thought, this kind of myth. This is the fiction, right? This is this is the that truth, um, as Virginia Woolf tells us, also comes from fiction. And this is something that Derrida is playing with. Okay, so in that in that chapter on the pharmacon, chapter four, Derrida's talking about the distrust Plato has for writing as well as painting, to which he compares it. Um, but that distrust is one of allowing a duality to exist. It doesn't mean you're kind of facing it head on and saying, no, this is not right. It's it's saying, wait a minute, there's there are multiple ways of understanding or experiencing this. And let's see if we can not just erase one, but allow it to be there while still considering um, the other, which isn't always satisfying. So I think this is part of the reason that some people like really don't enjoy Derrida's writing because it's it's not very comfortable to say, wait, we can let that exist and then also look at um, not necessarily the opposite, but a different way of looking at it as well. 
So Plato also wants a determined logic for the sake of philosophy, he says, related to this idea. But he allows the ambiguous side to exist at the same time. So he says, um, Derrida says, it can never be reduced. It goes beyond it. So you both have this kind of philosophy that's named and you allow a kind of extra external uh, external questioning at the same time. It's like proposing, you know, a scientific theory about black holes and then allowing um, other theories or questions to exist in that as well. Um, so oppositions such as good and evil, which I mentioned also inside, outside, true, false, they're presented, but the process of writing also proves these are not always concrete and we can question the oppositions. Um, if you want to look at deconstructing the idea of inside outside and what those words really mean for us also in our minds as well as in a setting um i really love robert frost an old man's winter night um if you just kind of look at that and analyze the language itself in considering that dichotomy and the associated language and the associated ideas i think you'll see what i mean it's a really cool thing to do with um, students as well. So the protagonist in my novel is a writer as well. Um, she's a journalist, and we also see her a couple of times writing in a journal. So she may be processing herself in this kind of nuanced way that Derrida um, tells us is, is useful. And as a writer in processing the self, then you are able to, he says, bring um, your version of the truth um, to others in that writing. And so it's, it's, uh, it's still a dialogue in a way, but it allows you to, to think first. And maybe it doesn't have to be, you know, a pen on paper or fingers on a keyboard. Um, maybe that kind of writing can be like a visual kind of writing. I mean, these, these are, this is my idea coming from Derrida's text. It can be, um, it could also be, you know, we talk about the opposition of speech and writing, but maybe it is a kind of speech, you know, even while I record this podcast for you, um, I'm I'm not um, in this part of the season, at least I'm not talking with other guests. So I've got notes before me, but I'm kind of, um, you know, adding ideas as I go. And it's kind of a form of writing. It's a form of expressing the self and looking within the self in in navigating the truth and one's ideas before bringing it to somebody else. And of course, though, in in writing and published writing, you have the chance to to edit those ideas, to go back to the language and then, you know, read it again and think, what does that really mean? What do I think about it now? Are there ways to either, and you might do this um, purposefully, either add more ambiguity at certain points in your text through the language, um, or um, you decide that it's too ambiguous and you want something more, um, more clear, more determined, more sure, and you can change the diction in that way as well. So overall, I mean, I think that interpretations that critique writing over speech um, take the translated words too literally here. Um, and, you know, they may have a point that maybe Derrida is going on too far of a tangent on Plato, but I think in that way he's, you know, he's really making his own work. He's not just interpreting Plato, and he tells us this at certain times he's really going off in his own direction and what he thinks about not only writing, but about philosophy in general and about language in general. Um, so you might want to consider how your characters function within this model. Um, are there any writers themselves in the text? Um, or how else do they explore their own thoughts in different ways? And alternatively, are they, um, are they at the mercy of how others tell them to think? Or are they able to have a kind of discourse? Are they able to sit with ambiguity? Um, or do they have to kind of go along with somebody has told them and sort of regurgitate it in a way? So, you know, in this text, we're also looking at um, the idea of logos as a word or as discourse, ideas of trust, not just truth, but trust and what kind of truth and what kind of language and what kind of people can be trusted. Um, also, this idea of memory, which, um, you know, Derrida discusses as fallible. Um, 
and you know and and the critiques have been well you know if memory is fallible therefore so is writing because we are writing um partly of in the way that our memories construct our perceptions um and this is something i've i've written about before here i'll, I'll link into that um, post in that podcast but if you know it is it is fallible but does that make it does that make it wrong does that make it worse or you know is that is that a poison if we look at the word pharmacon again does that make it a, phar- a pharmacon in the poisonous sense because we can't really trust our memory to understand the world or does that make it as we say a remedy a way to express um our ideas as they come from memory along with maybe other things um and and put them out there into this dialogue of discovery maybe our interpretation of our memories for example are more important than the actual memory themselves so there's a lot of you know questions in what this means and the concept of the pharmacon has been used in other academic areas um it's been used in technology and psychology um by alcoholics anonymous um, it's also been used in this kind of post-human and AI discourse that's going on. Um, Ginger Nolan likens this to the spatial conception of within or exterior to the city, um, which is a really interesting idea, and I'll link that there for you. So if you want to kind of go in one of those directions, or if you've seen it come up elsewhere, you know, we'd love to hear about that in the comments as well, because those kind of layers can also go into your um, creations of fiction. So if we move to um, to other fiction and other literature now, I know there's a lot more of dissemination that we could look at together. And I'll just, I'll leave you with that part. And if you want, um, as always with the other texts, if you want like a follow-up on maybe on some part of, of, of um, Derrida's work, such as, you know, the ideas of science and magic, which he talks about on 116, or going more into Plato's text, um, or perhaps um, a little bit later on when he looks more at philosophy and what that means, you know, we could do that in some kind of, um, in some kind of format, whether it's in the discussion chat or as another podcast. So, um, you know, just let me know. That would be great. And I know a few of you out there are looking at um, other texts of Derrida, sometimes with students. Um, and so, you know, it would be interesting to hear how those play into what we've talked about today as well. So let's look at the far- concept of the pharmacon in literature. So maybe just, um, I don't know, it seems like a, like a clear one, not that the pharmacon is ever clear, ever clear, but a clear one example to start with is Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Um, because we actually have a a drug that's used. And just the word drug, you know, if, if you're having trouble with this idea of the pharmacon and its duplicity, just think of the word drug in English. And of course, that has a duplicity already because, you know, people take drugs to stay alive, to feel well, to um, cut the inflammation in a sprained ankle, you know, whatever it might be. And that's a remedy. Um, a drug is a remedy, you know, the drugstore is a remedy. And then um, drugs can obviously also um, harm you or even kill you, as we know. So, you know, Juliet in Romeo and Juliet, she she fakes her death with a drug. You know, this is her plan to um, to escape and, and be with Romeo and escape the marriage that's that's planned for her by her parents. Um, and then, of course, Romeo poisons himself with a different drug um, because he thinks that Juliet's dead and then... Um, and then Juliet kills herself after that, right? So um, so we have this idea of the drug as a poison and a remedy. And even when Romeo kills himself, it is, for him, it's a kind of a remedy of the pain that he is feeling at that moment. Um, you know, and maybe not only, but partly because we know he's still quite young as well. He's a teenager, you know, and maybe he can't see beyond that. He can't see the future in the same way that he could perhaps if he were older. Um, so we have these two young people who are who are playing with these dangerous substances and it ends up leading to their death. So, you know, obviously a, a poison at that point. And then if we look at the deaths themselves, you know, of course they are they are poisons. The deaths are poisons because the the children are their children and they're dead and you know, that should be sad. That's kind of a unifying idea like dead children is 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 something that we can universally um 
agree is is sad for humanity. And so we have the families of the Montagues and the Capulets who are who are mourning their deaths. Um, and it also, though, inspires the doing families to perhaps get along at the end of the text, at least according to the the prince who decrees, you know, that they should that they should get along. So um not that we should, that, you know, we should say, oh, well, you know, people should die for this good as a kind of martyr. Um, at the same time, anytime we do have any kind of martyr, um, by definition, it's both a poison and a remedy at the same time. So I also came across in my research a novel actually called Pharmacon, which I'll link for you. I have not read it, um, but it had actually a few good reviews and things. Um, I don't know if any of you have heard about it. Um Related to the topic today, there was also an article from Kate Jones, who writes on Substack, um, a narrative of their own really great newsletter, and she discusses ambiguous endings in an article called Emma Klein's The Guest and Kate Chopin's The Awakening. Um, There's a really interesting look at kind of the purpose of ambiguous endings. um, And, you know, I think we can liken this to ambiguous language in general, um, you know, in that in terms of the ending, it would it might change the way we read an ending depending on, you know, how we interpret language along the way as well. Um, you know, and Kate Jones, she takes her the title of her of her newsletter from a room of one zone, which we've talked about here as well, Virginia Woolf's great work. And this work um, at once is asking for equality and access for women, um, women writers, but also women in general in society at the time of, of writing this, but then also deciding that perhaps being outside of the institutions, being locked out of the library, for example, or certain universities, or having to do things in a different way might also be better, be more creative. So although on the one hand, she's arguing for equality, on the other hand, she's saying, okay, maybe because we um, we are not allowed into certain spaces, we become more creative. We are not um, doing this kind of regurgitation that both Plato and Derrida agree is, is problematic. Um, so that's an interesting one to look at in relation to this text, I think. Um, you know, just coming back to the idea of endings as well, The Giver by Lois Lowry, which is um, this YA novel has, you know, I, I can't give away the ending if you haven't read it, but it is um, it is quite ambiguous and it can be really read in different extremes. And I think that, again, you know, allowing this ending and, you know, Lowry not coming out and saying, oh, this is the way she meant for us to see it. Um, really um, creates a wonderful space of play and fiction. So anytime you have a subversive text as well, you also trust the reader to understand the ambiguity of language. And I think of Huckleberry Finn, for example, um, by Mark Twain. I think of Herman Melville's Benito Serino, fantastic subversive text, um, novella. Animal Farm does this. Crime and Punishment, you know, whenever we have a kind of criminal protagonist um, or something, someone who could be described as evil in some ways, um, you know, it makes you just really question those binaries that we kind of learn to be true. So if we move to Eileen Chang's Lust Caution, um, from 1979. This is a really gorgeous novella by um, Eileen Chang, who is from um, Shanghai and lived in Hong Kong as well. Um, She went to the University of Hong Kong and she did a lot of writing from that space during Japanese occupation. So this text takes place in Japanese occupation in both um, mainland China and Hong Kong. It's um, got a really interesting story filled with um, duplicities along the way. And there's a 2007 Ang Lee film. So I just want to look at um, two uh, parts um, of this. Well, they're, they're linked parts, but these pages of this part where the protagonist um, is basically being asked to kill her lover. And so, you know, obviously there's a lot of tension in that distinction and, you know, what's in it for her and what are the ethics and different sides of this and, and all that. So, um, and then there's there's also some interesting afterwards that I want to quote from you for here. Um, and so, yeah, maybe we can just look at this together and think about it. 
So first of all, just a short paragraph um, that's preceding the moment where she's supposed to kill her level lover. Sorry, All these scenarios danced vaguely through her mind, even as she realized that none of this was her concern. She could not lose the feeling that upstairs in this little shop, she was sitting on top of a powder keg that was about to blow her sky high. A slight tremble was beginning to take hold of her legs. And so I love that um, the scenarios danced vaguely through her mind. It's kind of like the this, you know, duplicity or multiplicity even of ideas co- coexisting in your mind. And if we just skip a little bit ahead in that scene to page 45 in my text, which I'll link for you. He was gazing off into the middle distance, a faintly sorrowful smile on his face. He had never dared dream such happiness would come his way in middle age. It was, of course, his power and position that he had principally to thank. They were an inseparable part of him. And, you know, part of what's going on here is is this kind of dramatic irony where, you know, the reader is aware of things that, you know, this man is not. And anytime you have um, a kind of irony, you also get these this duplicity in different ways, sometimes through language, sometimes, um, you know, situational, dramatic, different kinds of irony. You can have um, different kinds of duplicity. Presents too were essential, though they needed to be distributed at the correct moments. Given too soon, they carried with an insulting insinuation of greed. Though he knew perfectly well the rules of the game they were playing, he had to permit himself a brief moment of euphoria at the prize they had fallen into his lap. Otherwise, the entire exercise was meaningless. He was an old hand at this, taking his paramour shopping, ministering to their whims, retreating into the background while they made their choices. But there was, she noted again, no cynicism in his smile just then, only sadness. He sat in silhouette against the lamp, seemingly sunk into an attitude of tenderly affectionate contemplation. His downcast eyelashes tinged the dull cream of moth's wings as they rested on his gaunt cheeks. He really loves me, she thought. Inside, she felt a raw tremor of shock then a vague sense of loss. It was too late. The Indian passed the receipt to him. He placed it inside his jacket. Run, she said softly. For a moment he stared and then understood everything. Springing up, he barged the door open, steadied himself on the frame, then swung down to grab firm hold of the banister and stumbled down the stairs, the dark narrow stairs. She heard his footsteps break into a run, taking the stairs two or three at a time, thudding irregularly over the treads too late she had realized too late so there's a lot going on in that passage and the way that the characters each respond to each other in this kind of um nuance where they're not they're not sure they're never sure of what the other one is thinking and the intentions um of the other it changes everything but there's also something going on um in the language itself. And of course, this is an English translation from the Chinese. So I just want to read to you a short um, um, part of the afterword from Ang Lee and then from James Shamo. So uh, this this edition came out when Ang Lee um, produced his adaptation. He says, to me, no writer has ever used the Chinese language as cruelly as Zhang Ailing. That's Eileen Cheng. And no story of hers is as beautiful or as cruel as Lust Caution. She revised the story for years and years, for decades, returning to it as a criminal might return to the scene of a crime, or as a victim might reenact a trauma, reaching for pleasure only by varying and reimagining the pain. Making our film, we didn't really adapt Zhang's work. We simply kept returning to her theater of cruelty and love until we had enough to make a movie of it. Zhang is very specific in the traps her words set. For example, in Chinese, we have the figure of the tiger who kills a person. There, thereafter, the person's ghost willingly works for the tiger, helping to lure more prey into the jungle. The Chinese phrase for this is weibu jiu cheng. It's a common phrase and was often used to refer to the Chinese who collaborated with the Japanese occupiers during the war. In the story, Zheng has Yi allude to this phrase to describe the relationship between men and women. Alive, Chia Chi was his woman. Dead, she is his ghost, his Cheng. But perhaps she already was when they first met, and now, from beyond her grave, she is luring him closer to the tiger. Interestingly, the word for tiger's ghost sounds exactly like the word for prostitute. So in the movie in the Japanese tavern scene, Yi refers to himself with this word. It could refer to his relationship to the Japanese. He is both their whore and their chung, but it also means he knows he is already a dead man. We, the readers of Zhang Ailang, are we her chung? Often the transition from one life into the next is made unexpectedly as an experience of the imagination. Zhang describes the feeling 
Chia Chi had after performing on stage as a young woman. The rush she felt afterward that she could barely calm down even after a late night meal with her friends from the theater and a ride on the upper deck of a tram. When I read that, my mind raced back to my own first experience on the stage back in 1973 at the Academy of Art in Taipei. The same rush of energy at the end of the play, the same late night camaraderie, the same wandering. I realized how that experience was central to Zhang's work and how it could be transformed into film. She understood play acting and mimicry as something by nature cruel and brutal. Animals like our characters use camouflage to evade their enemies and lure their prey, but mimicry and performance are also ways to open ourselves as human beings to great experience, indefinable connections to others, higher meanings, art, and the truth. So I just think this this afterward is is brilliant. I mean, I think anybody who adapts, you know, and here we're talking about from written text to film, which is often what we're talking about in terms of adaptation, but not only, um, has to deal with these dualities in the text and has to make decisions about how they're going to be portrayed, um, either makes a decision one way or the other, or perhaps tries to recreate the duplicity in their adaptation, which is which is really tricky, but um, it can possibly be done. And I love the way Ang Lee is looking at language really closely here. Um, my apologies, there's no markings for the tones of the words here, so I did my best with the Chinese there for my limited um, Chinese classes about 10 years ago. Um, but you know, even the way that the the sound of the of the words is similar in Chinese, and the way that that can create multiple meanings, um, you know, the same is true for the word "for" in Cantonese, at least. Um, I'm not sure about in Mandarin. It sounds a lot like the word for death, and so in the same way that um, some Westerners keep the 13th floor out of a building um in hong kong a lot of times the fourth floor was left out or in my case i once got um a bit of cheaper rent on a fourth floor apartment which was really great i loved it but um it's funny how you know languages use can can change things in that way um and just the the other afterward i'm not going to read you the whole thing but just 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 the beginning to give you a sense of what james jamis is talking about here um here it's why did she do it the question is itself an admission of the impossibility of ever really answering it and yet we ask another more specific way of asking what act exactly does wang chia chi perform at that fateful moment in the jeweler's shop when she decides whether or not to go through with the murder of her lover and here two words, act and perform, indicate the troubling question Zhang Ailang asks us. For at that crucial moment when we choose, when we decide, when we exercise our free will, are we not also performing? And so it brings up that question of, you know, in these duplicities, even in the act of reading, we're making choices. Maybe they're not as consequential as, you know, killing your lover or not, but you're making a choice in the way that you interpret it. It doesn't mean that you can't go back and interpret it differently um, later on, um, but it it is a it is a choice of free will. And, you know, that's part of, as I mentioned last week, I had that student who talked about this idea of free will in parallel universes. And you can think of, um, you know, in a parallel universe, you might interpret the language of a text differently. And so that free will is what he posited is the meaning of life or makes us human or gives us kind of, um, say, a reason to live. Um, so, you know, you can take it in different directions. But I think that this text is just, you know, Derrida's text is extremely rich. This text by um, Eileen Chang is is extremely rich as well. And I think if you read them in connection, maybe maybe you can get more out of the the original from Derrida and even from Plato itself um, before that. Um, because also, if you think of speech versus writing, there are some very interesting um, dialogues contained within this text. So we are also going to come back to these ideas with Let's Do This, the five-minute digestible um, version of the podcast on Thursday to think about um, more practical ways that you can use these ideas in your fictions. Spaces and places. 
This is the part of the podcast when I talk about a particular space or place I've used in this novel chapter, and some related ideas you might consider in your own fiction. So today I'm talking about Shangwan, um, which is an incredible neighborhood in Hong Kong on Hong Kong's central island or main island. Um, it's one of the neighborhoods that I lived in when I was there. Um, and it's just west of central and down near the harbor. And I say down because Hong Kong central island is all a hill or it's a kind of a series of peaks. Um, and in sort of the main area, you might go as a tourist, especially, but also for um, a lot of business and um, a lot of the bigger buildings where they are. It kind of progresses up a hill. There's even an outdoor series of escalators that can take you up the hill because you know it gets very hot there in the summer, especially, and you don't want to sweat in your suit on your way to work. So they have these escalators, um, which are great. But as you progress upward, you also reach different districts or perhaps just simply a hiking trail once you get far enough. Um, so Shangwan is down by the harbor. Um, it is um, a place with a lot of history that's changed over time. Um, and it's a place that even after I, w- I only lived there for about a year or so, maybe, yeah, maybe I think it was just a year. Um, but I came back there frequently. I mean, because there's a lot there, there's lots of restaurants, there's a wonderful, um, promenade along the Harbor and a big park, the Sun Yat-sen Park. Um, it's also where my yoga studio was. So I would go there and then there were these great little coffee shops around. I would maybe go with a friend afterwards or something like that. Um, I also sometimes went on runs in that area, perhaps starting in the trails and then ending up in the urban space or vice versa. And I found it just really interesting to run in those urban spaces and all the different kind of shapes of steps and little parks that the space could take. Of course, you don't want to do that um, if it's really busy or especially if it's raining or very sunny and people have their umbrellas out because you will definitely get poked in the eye or if you can even make your way through the masses of umbrellas. So um, I actually went um, back there uh, a couple years ago um, with my one-year-old son at the time. And man, it was a lot harder with um, a baby on those streets because some of the streets are pedestrian streets and not necessarily busy with car traffic, but just busy with, um, you know, lots of people. And they're not really set up for um, strollers. You know, there's a lot of up and down, for example, a lot of bumps, a lot of, you know, narrow spaces as well and um, no high chairs in the restaurants but anyway that's kind of a digression but there there's a lot to do around there Um, I'm not sure that you want to bring young children so much not that you can't but it was it was a little bit tricky and it's funny how I think you experience spaces differently um, depending on who you're with so a little bit of history Um, Shengwan was one of the first British settlements when the British came over and colonized Hong Kong, and they be um, and it belonged to the historic city of Victoria at that time. So um, the first British occupation of Hong Kong Island was in 1842, and on Possession Street between Queens Road Central and Hollywood Road, and Hollywood Road kind of moves up this hill into. Um, central and then what we call mid-level so there's a lot of kind of art galleries there and trendy restaurants and it's a space that a lot of people pass through if they work in central or live around there it's really the heart of that area Um, and there's a plaque to the effect of that stating that the British had settled there um, on Hollywood Road at the top of Possession Street Um, and it's it was then the shoreline where that plaque is, but there is now um, several hundred yards more land due to land reclamation. And this is a huge thing in Hong Kong, just filling in the spaces um, with this land that is posited and made into something else, um, which doesn't happen everywhere. So it's sort of a strange phenomenon, kind of creating more land out of nothing and you know what does that land turn into um it takes a lot of different shapes and it's obviously a huge um, engineering and expensive project um 
But at that time, also Western District became Chinatown, where Chinese relocated during the Cultural Revolution. So Western District making up um, Shangwan and then Saiyingpun, Kennedy Town, a little farther up, Pokfulam, um, which is where the University of Hong Kong is located. Um, and so that whole area was... Um, was kind of seen as Chinese, so new immigrants from China, not the original um, or more original Hong Kongers, or maybe people generationally called calling themselves Hong Kongers at that point. Um, so it's a kind of space of reinvention. It's a space that definitely exhibits the kind of urban density you might expect in Hong Kong. But there are also places of oasis, as there are in most of the districts. But, you know, for districts so just, just off of Central, it's interesting that a lot of these places near the harbor especially um, can feel um, really not completely empty, but sort of just peaceful and away from the city. Um it was also the original place of the printing and publishing world in Hong Kong, um, probably because it's just down from the University of Hong Kong, Pokfu Lam. Um, and, you know, so that's maybe an interesting connection for those of you writing fiction. Um, like anywhere in the city, you really need to kind of orient yourself. I think at first it can feel really overwhelming. As I mentioned, that urban density, you know, there's millions of restaurants and shops and there's lots of maybe people even sitting out on the street doing their work um, or their craft um, simply because the spaces are so small and sometimes there are even shops that are set up outside um, places that fix your umbrella or your shoes or um, places that sell you some food so um, just you know space is, is such a premium in Hong Kong that all the space is being used and you know, especially when it's hot, people want to maybe get outside or perhaps retreat into the AC, but it can feel um, really small and kind of claustrophobic. So you see a lot of life on the street too. Um, but I think once you orient yourself, you can kind of make your way through this labyrinth, if you will, um, of a place and find um, not just the oasis by the promenade, as I mentioned, but even in a lot of these little side streets that are still very urban, that still have, you know, skyscrapers all around you. So you can get, you feel kind of lost in them because you can't always see the light, for example. Um, there's a lot of bamboo for construction um, set up all around you. Um, but a lot of these little streets and their cement um there's cement steps, you know, that first might look just oh, too cement, too urban. How do I, how do I get out of this space and find my nature? I think once you once you experience it a little bit more, you start to see the culture that exists in those spaces, and it starts to feel um, really natural in that sense, um, in the way that people have inhabited these spaces and made them their own, and made something really special and often artistic there as well. So, I mean, I think Shengwan is a really cool neighborhood. I definitely definitely recommend you visit if you go to Hong Kong. Um, you know, the idea of spaces as being post-colonial, you know, I talked about it being the, one of the first British areas, um, is quite complex in Hong Kong, um, you know, because you've got the Japanese occupation and then, you know, what's going on in terms of the handover to China, first of all, and then the Chinese taking more and more control now, um, even though there are still supposed to be um, a couple more decades before um, before Hong Kong becomes completely China. It's now the SAR or Special Administrative Region. But it has this, this complex dynamic with all of those um, places as well as a, being a globalized place and with so many immigrants and expats, kind of people who aren't necessarily sort of permanent em immigrants or see themselves that way um, in Hong Kong it's it's got a very dynamic um, makeup of people and I think you see that in the spaces themselves and the all the different um, articulations that those spaces um, make up but I think I would argue that Hong Kongers really make it their own um, and it's this kind of sometimes invisible layer to the space um, this is the power. This is the in what we see often as the space of disappearance um, in terms of culture, Hong Kong culture, as the Hong Kong scholar Akbar Abbas describes it. And I've mentioned him before. I'll link his book there as well, Culture and the Politics of Disappearance. Um, 
he says it's actually a reverse hallucination um, that people don't see what is actually there. And Akbar Abbas, um, he grew up in Shangwan. And so I'm sure that this space, this place is, is, and the way that it's changed over time is also central to, you know, a lot of his ideas about Hong Kong culture. Um, and even, you know, the way that you can, if you really look around Shangwan, you know, there's this huge market as well. There's the Western market, which is the oldest market in Hong Kong, which has been recently redone. And it has um, shops that some of them are quite authentic to Hong Kong itself. You have the the food markets and the the food that that is drying outside and some of it I'm sorry it smells a bit gross but it looks really beautiful and um and some of it also smells really wonderful and tastes really wonderful when you go into the um the food market itself and these kinds of places um might be invisible or seem as if they're disappearing um until you look a bit closer and you realize it's all around you so these are more maybe traditional practices and then combined with the um more contemporary aspects of hong kong culture whatever they might look like in the cafes in the yoga studios in the apartments um of which there are many 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 in in that neighborhood um and you see it on the streets as well so he's saying you just need to look a little more closely and you know shengwan is a great place to do that um so we might want to think more generally about how does a history of space change the way we inhabit it. Um, you know, there's this idea of ghostly haunting in the past, and we see this in a lot of film and literature. Um, there's land shifts, whether it's on purpose, land reclamation, recla- reclamation, or um, or the loss of land at the coast, for example. Not only um, it show it might show human innovation, or it might show climate change, or it might show just natural changes over time um it might show something about the history of a space and its people um you know what can be uncovered in a space as it changes over time and why do certain groups of people live in certain neighborhoods or why does an individual choose to become a part of that neighborhood whether they inhabit it um through their home dwelling or they inhabit it Um, on a daily basis for work or for other reasons, you know, why do people choose to inhabit the space that they do is that question. As always, I'll bring you a five-minute version of today's topic to help you get creative and let's do this on Thursday. If you're not on my Substack page, please sign up for a free subscription to get access to all the links, multimedia, and a transcript, as well as to join the conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on the Matterhorn today. 